Hello, welcome to the second episode of Sin Amazing Chats. I'm Pablo, and this is Erica. Hey. Hi. Um, so I realized last week that we never actually really explained what this podcast was, so I thought it would be good to just take a moment here to sort of explain it, and also sort of ex- to explain the uh, photo we have as our cover header. So basically... Oh yeah, our header yeah, photo. So basically that photo comes from when we went to see The Dark Knight Rises, and we both went as Rachel Dawes, as portrayed by two different actresses, and... I was the Katie Holmes Rachel Dawes, and Pablo was the Maggie Gyllenhaal Rachel Dawes, and you can see us posing next to the poster with um, Catwoman, played by Anne Hathaway in the third film. Exactly. Uh, And we were basically Rachel Dawes' ghost come back to haunt Batman. So uh, the idea behind some amazing chats is that each week we'll take some sort of like cinematic dreck, something like really dreadful, and we'll sort of analyze it tear into it criticize it really try to cover all the bases and hopefully leave the listener with something interesting i will really digest it and break it down into some bite-sized bits this week we saw mr megorium's wonder emporium which is only the greatest and most wonderful film about a toy store ever made it's about it's a film about a magical toy store that is also the name of the film mr megorium's wonder emporium his name Conveniently rhymes with the word emporium. Yeah, uh, so the film starts off sort of on a good note. It has like an animated intro, which isn't that bad. And, uh, you know, you can sort of see the tone they're going for. It's very like light and colorful with like bright technicolor, uh, everything, like candy colors. Yellow and red, primary colors, bright rainbow colors. I guess there's kind of a ball theme because isn't there a red hopping? Oh yeah, ball there there is a recurring the uh, visual motif of a red bouncing ball. So the film actually introduces us first to Natalie Portman's character uh, of Molly Mahoney, which all the characters in this movie sort of have uh, ridiculous names that you'd never actually find in nature. <laughs> Yes, the uh, description of the film says Molly Mahoney is the awkward and insecure manager of the Wonder Emporium. Basically, we have a classically trained pianist who apparently composes her own music, and yet she somehow is working for Mr. Megorium. Yeah, wait, is this in New York City? She's a pianist in New York City? Yeah, I kind of just assumed it was New York. Um, not sure when they said where it was. And she has this, like, huge house. Like, in New York, that would be really expensive. And I think she might be um, only working at the toy store. Like, she is a trained pianist, but she's not getting paid to do that. Right, so she's sort of supporting her so composing funding dream this... by working mm-hmm. at the toy store. Some part-time job for this creepy old Megorium guy. Uh, but... Yeah, how is she paying for... I was wondering how is she paying for that super swanky how, house without, you know, family money. How dare you question money? the reality of a film all about magical shoes? <laughs> yes, it's a film about magical realism or magical surrealism. Yeah, I think it's I don't just know. like an attempt at magical realism that didn't quite pull it off. That like veered badly off the tracks at some point. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, no, wait, the first thing we open to is not Natalie Portman, but it's the guy who lives in the basement of the store, the mustachioed man. 
and he has a tattoo on his arm that says to be filled in later. Oh, that's right. Without an explanation, we are uh, put in, thrust into this world where a bald man just sits in a basement with a mustache and no actual explanation <laughs> as to what he's doing, why he's like important to the story or who he is until much later, except for like narration by a boy who will meet way too soon. I So apparently this character, who I didn't really even catch much of the gist of in the film because he's hardly present. Um, let's see, he was, the actor was in Hairspray the Musical, Resident Evil Apocalypse as well. Which actor, the bald uh, man? The bald man. His name is Bellini. Bellini the book builder and so I was like oh is he a cocktail right and a lot of this film <laughs> is seemingly drawn from or inspired by like other popular kids fictions uh including like popular stories for kids uh I'd say a lot of it's very derivative of Roald Dahl books such as Willy Wonka um clearly uh Dustin Hoffman's character is supposed to be like a mischievous oh. like childlike imp of a man yeah, there's a bit of um, a Toy Story quality where the toys kind of come Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised. There's like a lot um, of animation in this film. Yeah, and puppeteering. Uh, there are lots of puppeteers in the credits. That might be like one of the only redeeming qualities is that it does have like a lot of little artistic touches present in the edges, but the story isn't really there. Oh, right. And the kid, the kid character is the narrator. So his voice, his annoying voice is the first thing. Yeah, and I also noticed during the opening credits that um, Zach Heldon, the director. Oh, Zach Helm. The director sort of made his credit read supposedly a film by Zach Helm, which as we'll see later in the film could have many different resonances, but primarily probably is the director trying to distance himself. (laughs) Yes, he's trying to distance himself from this odd film. And the film actually has a pretty good pedigree. It was financed by uh, 20th Century Fox, Walden Pictures, Mandate, a bunch of companies that are fairly big. So clearly a lot of people had a lot of money writing on this, taking off, sort of becoming a kid film like mainstay. Yeah, and I thought it was actually based on a kid's book because the kid, the child is the narrator and they organize the film by chapters. So uh, they do kind of want it to seem like a kid's book. Right, and we learn way later in the film that it actually is a book that uh, sort of spoilers. Right, Bellini is the book builder. Yeah, Bellini is the book builder, not the cocktail maker, apparently. And yet we never really learn anything about Bellini or, like, care about him at all. It is almost like this is a book adaptation and they left out the crucial detail of, like, and he was observing everything and, like, noting it. Megorium says that he, uh, the mustachioed man, was born in the basement of the store. Like, this guy has no identity. He's just lived there for hundreds of years. He's a living cipher. He's like a human, but he's part of, he's part store. He's human Froyo, as community would say. Um. Um, yeah, but so after the kid is narrating some stuff over the Bellini man and introducing the store and the whimsy of the store, then Natalie Portman is showing her whimsy, her own whimsy because the kid, I think the narrator's talking about was talking about uh, how growing up is bad, basically. 
Oh, yeah. They established really early on um, just the concept of time and mortality and how you can't really avoid the progress of time. The entire film's about, like, growing yeah. and changing and dying eventually. But throughout all this time, you should always stay young at heart. Like, Megorium, we learn, is hundreds of years old, and he is still so childlike. Yeah, he's kind of like an energy vampire. He's just, like, kept in stasis. He hasn't really had to change over the many millennia. He just, like, oh, flits in and out of society, God. like, influencing through art. He feeds He feeds off the energy of all the kids that come in the store. Right, so there's also definitely shades of Michael Jackson. He definitely wants, like, that kid energy constantly around. And there's, like, weirdly dark <laughs> and creepy vibes to it at certain points. He also... Uh, because at first he f he flirts with his real age, right? He's kind of like doesn't want to admit how old he is. Yeah, throughout the film, there's so a question of how old is Mr. Megorium. He keeps getting older. Yeah, every time it is brought up, it keeps getting the age keeps getting older. And like we learn that he uh, invented the light bulb or something. Oh, I missed that detail. Yeah, it was like he had a note, for an IOU from Thomas Edison in his oh, papers. Right. Because he's been around so long. But I'm like, so he hasn't just always been toy storing. He's a man of many talents. So basically in this film, we have like a fairly limited cast. There's Mahoney and Mr. Megorium. And Mahoney, for some reason, just buys into all of Mr. Megorium's bullshit. <laughs> and then we have... Oh, um, yeah, they have a very intense relationship. Like... When they talk, you know, they put their hands on each other's faces, like that kind of relationship. Yeah, it's father-daughter, it's like pseudo-sexual. It's father-daughter and uh, employee boss, and also... Sort of Shades of Oedipal uh, or Electric Complex. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely wrote, like, do not let your boss touch your face like that. <laughs> but yeah, throughout the film, um, you can sort of get the sense that basically the entire crew and the director were maybe trying too hard. Like whenever I feel like a film's always in trouble when it's specifically trying to be a different type of film. Oh, this also had hints of night at the museum for me because Definitely. it's just, I don't know. It's just not that entertaining, but it's meant to be so whimsical. Yeah. It's like forced, um, wholesomeness. Yeah. Kind of like trite, uh, themes that, oh yes, it's good to always stay young. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the only way to live. Oh, it's also sort of like Peter Pan. He has like yes, Peter it's Pan very syndrome. Peter Pan. Yeah, he has a Peter Pan complex or whatever it's called. Because even though he's uh, hundreds of years old, he's still like at least young at heart, if not like basically acts like a child. Oh, and which is also sort of like Pee Wee Herman. In fact, in the film, at a certain point, we see oh, a puppet yeah. that is very Pee Wee Herman esque. Yeah, he is a lot like Pee Wee Herman. Oh, and the kid character um eric or whatever his name was yeah oh, eric. yeah that he, kid looks like peter pan or pinocchio or Wee herman put together yeah he's on the same level as megorium as far as t wanting to play with toys like he brings mr megorium toys to play with and mr megorium was just always goofing off of course which you would think if they're like ripping off willy wonka that badly like why not just go all the way and have mr megorium like leave the leave the store to the kid instead of to natalie portman <laughs> yeah that is kind of odd you're right but natalie portman has to um i guess 
what is that's um, does that mean it's uh pandering to the adults and it's saying natalie portman has to find her inner child in order to run the store yeah basically that's sort of what the conclusion is uh natalie portman decides to keep the store instead of selling it it wants adults to find their inner child yeah and it does not it like the kid it's it comes easy to the kid because he is a child but once you're an adult you have to keep fighting to be childlike so the first scene in the film, we have Natalie Portman uh, play her piano song, and then she arrives into work, where, mm-hmm. of course, there's like a hat randomly hanging off one of the signs. Wait, yeah, the kid is reaching for the hat. We're introduced to the kid who's the narrator. He's Which... jumping for the hat that's hanging on the sign, like a cowboy hat. Of course. And then he just has it later. How did he get it? Was it just the whimsy of the store? I missed that. Well, it might be Mr. Goriam's freaky, stretchy arms, which is introduced later in the <laughs> film. Maybe he oh, stretched yeah, he his can arm stretch way his up arm. and grab the hat. Yeah, no one questions that. So my question is, is this a film about hats or is it a film about shoes? Because there's definitely both in the film. Well, yeah, again, the kid is kind of, yeah, he's kind of the parallel of Megorium. He's into hats. He wears a different hat every single day. And Megorium has a collection of shoes, as we learn. Yeah. Uh, he reveals this, like, midway through the film, that he has, he lives by his shoes, basically. So we see a zebra inside, I think, right away. Yeah, we definitely see that one of the whimsical things about this space is that there are animals like zebras and various other uh, animate toys just running around. Room of toy trains, uh... Let's see, Mahoney comes into a, goes into a room and opens the door, and first it's just like a really elaborate train set, then she closes the door, switches the dial, and suddenly it's a flight of stairs going up to Mr. Megorium's room. Oh, yeah, it's his house, yeah. That's on the dial. We're introduced to Mr. Megorium, Dustin Hoffman, under, like, really... It's not bad makeup, it's just, like, really unconvincing and sort of stupid. He has... He has eyebrows just sticking straight up and out. Yeah, it's like if someone were to take sort oh, of a cartoon like doodle and then sort of transpose that into a real thing. Yeah, it's sort of like Doc Brown, and he has sort of a close yeah. relationship, with, almost like a Marty McFly-esque like apprenticeship <laughs> thing going on with Natalie Portman. And by the way, I just want to say here for the record how annoying like almost every detail of this film in is, down to like all the names... Down to like the oh yeah, Molly down Mahoney. Uh, down to the <laughs> weird accents that Dustin Hoffman puts on his character. This like really horrible. Oh person. yeah. And the boy, a- oh, the child actor is terrible. Child actor is pretty grating. Natalie Portman. They're playing off of her um, having been a manic pixie dream girl. So they're kind of making her childlike and whimsical, or they're trying. Yeah, Natalie Portman's always very childlike, and yet her characters are also always very brilliant. Like in Thor, she was a renowned physicist. Um, In Black Swan, she was like a brilliant uh, ballet performer. In Star Wars, she was like this politician (laughs) and queen. Basically, don't hire Natalie unless you have a really, like, brilliant lead in mind. Yeah, this one, she's listed as a composer, so I guess she's always trying to write the perfect piano song. That's why she's always tapping away on the piano. Which is odd, because you could have written, like, sort of a darker movie on this theme about obsession. 
Like she's obsessed with mm-hmm. music. He's obsessed with toys and his shoes. Yeah, she's always um, she has this habit with uh, like tapping out the keys on, with her hands. Oh, it could complete the Dark Swan, whatever that trilogy was. Um, that was about obsession, like the wrestler and Black Swan. And yeah, it was like basically you're right. It could be about obsession <laughs> taken too far. Oh, and before I forget, I did want to mention that the person who wrote and directed this movie uh, actually wrote a different movie that was really good, I thought, um, Stranger Than Fiction, which is a Will Ferrell vehicle that's also all about like unreality fiction fact. In that one, Will Ferrell is a character in a story that is being written by Emma Thompson. And this one, we also have like questions of reality. Oh, he's changing behind a room divider when she goes up into his house. He goes behind a screen, activates a series of switches, and suddenly some machines are doing who knows what to him. (laughs) Yeah, it's really creepy. And he stares, his head is above the room divider level. So he just, um, he's like, what's up, Mahoney? Stares at Natalie Portman. This is totally Yeah, he normal, watches Mahoney. her while you just hear bzz, 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 like, yeah, who knows what it's doing under there. But he comes out dressed, so presumably it's dressing him, but, you know, maybe it gives him, like, a fluff or something before sending him out into the world. Yeah, and so despite all the, like, whimsical things going on, like the stop-motion Lego man and the moving sock monkey and all that stuff, in spite of all the magic, uh, what the plot starts to get concerned with is the fact that Mr. Magorium has just hired a new accountant, or is trying to vet a new accountant, who is played by Jason Bateman in a very similar, like, arrest development mode. Yes, Jason Bateman is, like, the foil, sort of, to Natalie Portman, because he does not believe in the magic of the store, or any magic, and he is just very, he's a skeptic and a cynic. Exactly, so we have this very magical creature... Uh, Mr. Magorium, surrounded by Natalie, who's like sort of a recent convert, and Jason Bateman, who's elderly, unconvinced, and like terrible with children, doesn't understand children. Oh yeah, he's lost, he's like, I used to play checkers, but not anymore. Oh, and also I noticed they really made people into math and science kind of look like they don't have fun or something. Like Natalie Portman has an engineer guy come and hit on her in the store. Oh, that's true. And I guess he's just like, and a yeah, he's just a boring adult. So she kind of like blows him off. And then Jason Bateman again is a, so is a skeptic. So, and he's an accountant, so he deals with numbers. So I feel like it's teaching kids like not to do math and science. It's like, you can't have any whimsy or fun. Yeah, I guess you could argue that's sort of anti-intellectual, but um, on the other hand, you have to think that the way toys are actually made does involve a lot of engineering and stuff like that. Yeah, you could be a whimsical engineer for sure. So I think this film's trying to set up a dichotomy of like left brain, right brain, like one is creativity and fun and playing and the other it's just like logic and straightforward somehow. Yeah, this film kind of sets up this false dichotomy between the two. Oh, and also she gets the cube of wood in that scene uh, where he changes behind the room divider. And he's like touching her face and telling her she has to figure out what the cube of wood does. Okay, so the film introduces like a little subplot mystery. Like what is this cube and how is it going to come into the film? It's a companion cube. Yeah, or it's uh, Chekhov's wooden cube Chekhov what is that oh that's the Chekhov's gun premise so Anton Chekhov was this Russian playwright 
who basically wrote this thing about theater, which is that if you introduce a gun into the plot, then it has to be used by the end of the plot. Uh, it's basically all about efficiency, oh. which this film is not efficient at all. It's like way too long. Right. Well, yeah. So while I was reading in the plot summary that it's the Congreve cube, William Congreve was an English playwright and poet, which I thought was interesting. Huh. Um, so Congreve is, uh, he used satire and well-written dialogue and did English comedy. Right. So for the most so part. So clearly Zach Helm, like as evidenced by Stranger Than Fiction, is a pretty well-read guy, probably has an English degree or something. Clearly he knows a lot about like yeah. uh, the tropes of fiction, how stories are put together, like archetypes and all that. So it's not that he just like... That's true. It's not like he's just like an incompetent writer or anything like that. It's more like maybe he got in over his head or he was trying to do too much or like the, I guess the style he was trying to go for didn't quite fit some of the darker themes. He was just, um, he was just going through the motions. Yeah. It might've also been a studio <laughs> thing. Like maybe him and the studio disagreed about certain aspects. Yeah. I think he was probably yeah. just going through the motions. Like, like we could see how it reminded us of other films and other tropes, but it just fell short. Yeah, but like we were saying, there there is actually a list of some cool things in this film, even even though, like, overall, it's pretty, like, internally boring and, like, weird and contrived, I would say, is the general tone. Yes. Yeah, the, so the cube of wood is what, definitely one of those contrivances, because Natalie Portman just keeps looking at the cube this whole time, this block of wood, and being like, I have no idea, and she doesn't figure it out to, like, the very, very end. Yeah. So it's just, like, really drawn out. And we decided that um, parents have sort of instituted a don't-ask-don't-tell policy with Mr. Magorium's <laughs> Wonder Store, because clearly if they're there for any amount of time, they see, like, magical things happening. So one can assume they just, like, drop their kids off and don't ask any questions and later pick up their kids yeah and the kids just think it's like fun how toys work no because one mom even asked natalie portman how did you do that yeah and it's just like shh <laughs> and clearly in any other context mr mcgorian would be some sort of nightmare creature since he has the ability to stretch his arms he uh has oh yeah for hundreds of they years. show him stretching his arm entirely across the store to grab a toy for a kid he seems to prey on so children. like you said it's like He's like a nightmare from Elm Street. He's like Freddy Krueger, like you said. And you had a funny observation about like a scene where it seemed like Mr. McGorm was going to lose his temper. Oh, it was Natalie Portman was check was um, the cashier for the engineer guy. And she was like, before giving him his shopping bag, she was just like, oh, let me get these bouncy balls out of your bag because they have a tendency to like leave and have a mind of their own. So she has to get the balls out of his bag. But if you don't believe in magic, how would you think the balls got in there? I was just like, you know, the customer, if he was an engineer who was so dry and did not believe in magic, then he would think that she was accusing him of stealing the balls. That's true. And also after that scene, you get a quick cameo, like blink and you'll miss it, from Kermit the Frog. Oh, yeah. Kermit is one of the puppets that is puppeteered in this so film. I have no idea how that came um, about. I assume they just threw, like, a truckload of money at Jim Henson company. They're like, we need a cameo. Right. And it's weird because it's not a Muppet film, so Kermit was just, like, in the store shopping or something. Right. It's part of that whole, like, Muppet mythos where 
it's taken to be assumed that the Muppets are actually living and have lives and complex, like, rich He is a real frog. Yeah, he's a real frog who sometimes yeah. plays a puppet. Uh, um, and then Jason Bateman comes in because he has a business meeting with Mr. Magoria. He's also playing sort of similar to like Adam Scott in Parks and Recreation, where he's like mm-hmm. uh, really awkward and nerdy, but doesn't really know how to have fun. Oh yeah, the kids hate the accountant, like kind of making fun of him as soon as he walks in the store. Which I still also don't understand how this film got such a good cast. Like, Dustin Hoffman's an amazing actor. Oh, yeah. Jason Bateman should actually be able to be funny. Yeah, and Jason Bateman is consistently throughout the movie, like, playing almost as if he's in a different type of movie. Like, he's very serious, very stoic. Like, he actually seems to be trying really hard. To be, he's a real accountant in this film. Yeah, whereas Natalie Portman sort of, like, is phoning it in. With it, with her like I'm so whimsical and manic pixie dream girl like trope, and I don't even know what Dustin Hoffman's doing. I think he really was thinking he would like create another Willy Wonka esque like Gene Wilder performance. Have you remembered for ages? Yeah. But then he gets really serious too in like the weirdly dark thematic scenes. He has like I think three monologues throughout the film, where he gets really into heavy shit. Yes. Um, oh, actually, that's the next scene. Uh, Dustin Hoffman sort of declares his suicide intent to Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah, because now that the accountant's here, she's everyone's probably wondering, why are you getting an accountant now? Because he's had this store for, like, hundreds of years, and the paperwork's all over the place. Jason Bateman's like, holy shit, this is an insurmountable task. So this is his insurmountable task that he has to reach for like the kid had to reach for the hat. Oh yeah, that's official metaphor. <laughs> yeah, reaching for the impossible. This so, movie's yeah. really reaching, all right. Jason Bateman's basically like, "What is wrong with you, Mr. Magorium? <laughs> this is ridiculous to hire me to do." Mr. Magorium's like, "I don't have long to live." <laughs> yeah, he explains. I bought these fabulous shoes in Tuscany. <laughs> and I bought a pair of magic shoes. Said, I, <laughs> I said, I bought enough to last my whole life, and these are my last pair. Mr. Magorium's gonna die soon! <laughs> yeah. So he, I guess he's some sort of immortal, magical being who chose to have a, you know, a timeline on his life, basically. Like I said, there there wouldn't be, there wouldn't need to be much change to turn this into a straight-up horror film, like if you just changed... Slightly various <laughs> a nightmare that lives forever. Yeah, and then you have to like destroy his shoes in order to destroy him. So um, Zach Helm sort of has Mr. Magorium explain the conceit of the film, which is that he has magical pair of shoes, uh, but his last pair is about to be worn out. Of course, he has like comically like cartoony holes in the shoes. You can see the soles are starting. Yeah, to wear showing out. his socks. Which again, you can think right. like soul, soul, like that sort of pun. Oh my gosh. The soul was wearing out yeah, on Magorium. Exactly. Um, and you find out that Mr. Magorium only has one day left to live. So he's sort of putting his uh, his business things in order. He wants to make sure that the store is looked after. So he's trying to pressure Natalie to take the whole thing on. Oh, we learned she's 23. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess maybe she was sort of a child prodigy or something because she re- he references knowing her since she was like six or they they reference that. Really? Oh, I missed that um, too. So they've definitely had 
Yeah, they've had a weird intimate relationship That's super creepy. her whole life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so she's just feeling down on herself. Like, she would not want Megorium to go. She doesn't think she can run the store. She basically doesn't think she can do anything. Yeah, and throughout the film, there's, like, little quick, uh, like, dark asides. Such a scene where a kid just gets crushed by a giant red rubber ball when he's alone in a room. And you sort of see, like, maybe he'll make it through the door. No, the door closes. He gets crushed. So you can just imagine, like, in the Willy Wonka version of events, he just gets taken out from the story and never appears again. But instead, Mr. McGorm just opens oh, right. the door and he's just sort of, like, CGI-ly uh, crushed up against the rubber ball. Yeah, it's interesting. None of the kids are real characters. You just see a lot of... Except the one the one Eric Applebaum kid. Uh, but everyone else is just, like, an extra in the store. And you're never really invested in that at all. Yeah, and Willy Wonka, you're learning something from each kid, and each kid has a developed character or a type, an archetype that they are. And in this film, it's just like, oh, haha, here's a room full of balls. This this movie suffers from <laughs> a weird thing, which is that it's really slow going, but also really rushed. So a lot gets like not explained or just sort of like uh, moving through the plot to get to like the big monologue. Yes. We have the kid reintroduced, who I guess is the other main character. He just comes to the store and hangs out all he, day. So we were wondering if he had some sort of tragic story, of course. Yeah, it seems like he might be an orphan or something. And he wears, uh, in this scene, he wears like a ridiculous big sombrero, which I was like, is this racist? Yeah, a little bit. And then, oh, he builds Lincoln out of Lincoln Logs, President Lincoln. Let's see. Then we get the next monologue for Mr. Megorium, where he sort of has a great line where he says, I'm laughing on the inside. And then he also explains to Mahoney that Jesus isn't real, but nothing is. So it's this weird spiritual aside where he's like explaining that reality isn't real. Oh, you're right. He sort of explains that Jesus yeah. exists in like this fictional realm, but also the entirety of reality is also a fictional realm. So it's almost like Mr. Megorium is a meta character. I had a really deep thought after we watched this, and this is totally related to that. But basically, yeah, so at the end when he throws the paper thing around, he it's like tearing the fabric of the universe, and like you see like the universe being exposed. So if it's uh, his schizophrenic oh, yeah, his, like his descent, like we descent. were saying, his yeah, quick then that means... There, all the other characters, all of that Toy Story is made up as a construct of his mind, and that universe, like the space that we see, is the reality. Oh, wow. So really, he's like an uber god that got confused and yes. thought he was like a mortal man. And this movie is about like shedding your mortal reality instead, like letting go. Yes, and, and that's why he was realm. explaining. About yeah, Jesus. and that's why he was saying nothing was real. That's why he was using yeah. the Jesus metaphor. Yeah, and also joking just about reality and yeah. Anyways. So again, this film is like weirdly deep where it didn't need to be if that's if it was just going for like a kids film. Yes. Um So yeah, Jason I have written down that Jason Bateman just refuses to believe that it's a magical toy store. Although like we said Right. There's this whole scene where he's talking to Mahoney outside the store where meanwhile there's like a wooden T Rex like moving behind him. Yeah, but he, but everyone else believes that it's a magical toy store. Like we said, there's a don't ask, don't tell policy with everyone else, but Jason Bateman is just like, no. Well, the parents do, but then later uh, when Mr. McGorham is brought into like a hospital on a stretcher, all the other nurses and things are sort of like questioning him and everyone's being like, oh, he's some delusional, insane man. 
And Mahoney's like basically oh, his yes, only advocate true. aside from that annoying kid. That's true. Um, so yeah, I guess it's just an adult versus Megorium thing. Yeah, definitely. Which again was in Willy Wonka where all the adults were sort of idiots except for uh, Grandpa Joe. Yes. Oh, and then uh, Natalie Portman on the, her way home on the bus sees a sign, an advertisement that says, do you have a sparkle? <laughs> and this really disturbs her for the entire film. She's really worried she does not have a sparkle. Yeah, we introduced the idea of a sparkle, which won't really get explained or touched again upon until like <laughs> the last few minutes of the film. But yeah, it basically means, do you have the sparkle to be a manic pixie dream girl? But yeah, I definitely think, uh, so this is a film that, posits both that magic is real and then also challenges us to imagine this existential nightmare that mr megorium is living through whereby he's slowly dying he, he knows he's gonna die and he's surrounded by all this activity and color and bright wonder and magical sunshine where where he's like weighed down by the knowledge that he's gonna lose it all that's just gonna disappear and he'll it'll be gone forever <laughs> it'll be like his life closes yeah. in like a clamshell or something Wow. But he, no, but he's not sad about it because he's accepted it as he has said over and over. Right. So I'm saying there's, there might be like two, there might be like one reading of the movie and there might also be an alternative reading of the movie, which like we discussed would be like a Darren Aronofsky slow descent into schizophrenia yeah, he's, where he's like just imagining exactly. all this shit where, where he's just like dying. And he knows none of it's real. So he's just escaping whatever world he's from it also reminded me uh sort of tangentially of the really good akira kurosawa film ikiru which is also about a man's last day before he dies but in that case the man is a bureaucrat who knows he's like sort of wasted his life like toiling away in office work and tries to go about Mm. like through all the different ways to take advantage of his last day he like tries to see prostitutes he like tries to go to like fun places and eventually he just ends up on a swing and that's like his last happy thought is that he could bring joy to children if he helped use his money to create a park. Hmm. So both these films are sort of about creation and children and like passing on a legacy that will somehow benefit another generation. Yeah, about. except Mr. Megorium is like a like a mystical folk hero that's <laughs> lived for hundreds of years. Right, that's true. He's like done everything <laughs> and seen everything already. Yep, he he invented the light bulb, as he said. <laughs> yeah, he had an IOU from Thomas Edison. Oh, um, there's this terrible scene that totally riffs on that love actually scene where the kid and this <laughs> uh, the kid and the accountant sort of hold up little signs with text on it, where while a like really uh, twee horrible like indie song plays in the background. Yeah. It was actually really funny because the kid gets rejected. <laughs> um, yeah, the kid writes like, uh, you know, hi, you know, they're writing hi back and forth. And the kid's at the kid asks, do you like checkers? You know, he writes it on the paper. And then uh, Jason Bateman wrote, I used to play when I was a kid. And then uh, basically then the kid gets rejected by the accountant. Like the accountant refuses to play checkers with him. And the kid just writes, oh, frowny face. <laughs> Well, it's sort of that weird thing about, like, trying to be a friend to a kid. Well, that's not... it In the movie, it's just that Jason Bateman has no fun and is an adult and is a grown-up, but which is bad. But in real life, yeah, you might be worried. Like, Dustin Hoffman in the film doesn't worry at all about seeming weird that he's, like, touching kids left and right. 
But in real life, yeah, that w you would actually worry about seeming creepy. And actually, Jason Bateman's is really good in this scene. He's like very sweet, uh, really warm and sympathetic. So it's that weird thing again where he seems to be, he seems to think he's in a much more serious movie or like something that he's actually really trying for. So it's kind of sad in a way that he, <laughs> oh, oh, we were both joking that like by the end of the film, you can sort of see like the enthusiasm of the actors draining by the minute. Uh, to the point where they're all, like, yes. beaten down and, like, sort of just going through the motions again. Everyone, well, yeah, that's because, also because the latter half of the film, Megorium actually is dead, and they're all, like, just sad and can't figure out what to do. It's really drawn out. Right, we are both very confused about the fact that the film continues for 20 minutes after Mr. Megorium dies. Uh, but we learned the kid's sob story is not that he has no family, it's that he has no friends. Like, his mom is, like... You have to go ask people to play with you. You can't just make Lincoln out of Lincoln Logs by yourself every day. <laughs> and so he was trying to get Jason Bateman to play with him, and Jason Bateman rejected him. So it's like, take that, Mom. Don't try to interact with people. <laughs> yeah, it's like a troubled child who's lonely. It's all about how the store starts protesting, uh, because much like Mr. Megorium, it's also like sort of starting to fade Things are starting to, like, uh, fall into disrepair. It's turning gray. Yeah, like, flying airplanes start to fall out of the sky instead of fly on various yeah. things that would have been somehow magical, just become regular toys. Yeah, the store's acting up like a kid. It's like throwing a temper tantrum. And Megorium, like, talks to the store, like, come on, store. Oh, and also the store's upset because Natalie Portman, not only is Megorium dying, but in the store, Natalie Portman is, like, fighting with Megorium, saying, I do not want to take over the store. So the store is just like, fuck, no one's going to be around, and it's getting sad. I love the potentially unscripted scene where Natalie Portman just, like, has an outburst saying to Mr. Megorium, the store is called Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. It's like <laughs> almost telling Dustin Hoffman to step it up a notch or something. <clears throat> um... Oh, I have a Megorium quote that he said, we don't have time to discuss lemurs when a lemur appeared when the store was acting up. And you keep seeing the lemur hop around the store because it's just supposed to be so cute. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> so there's a scene where all the uh, stuffed animals and various toys in the store start attacking kids. That's another scene. Yeah, the lemur is attacking kids. It's another example of how the magic is starting to break down. So apparently the magic is like specifically tied to Dustin Hoffman's character. And I got a very Jumanji-ish vibe out of that scene. It was a lot of, like, sort of crappy oh, CGI yeah, with the animals. and animals running around and kids just, like, freaking out. Oh, this, we learned that the zebra's name is Mortimer. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> the zebra is just always there. And, yeah, does th that kind of brings up the question, so... These toys are animated by the store, or even the lemur popping into existence. I mean, the store is creating consciousness and life. That's kind of disturbing. Well, it's that almost, it can just take that away and create that. It's almost as though Dustin Hoffman, or Mr. Megorium's soul, is the soul of the store as well. And as he's dying, the store is also like losing that magical soul energy. Wow. But yeah, basically the, the toy store attacking um, kids would just mean a ton of lawsuits. Let's see, some other things I saw in that scene were an octopus book that like latches onto a mom's face. <laughs> uh, there was a flaming dragon <laughs> toy. 
Uh, oh, yeah, some, it's really going to burn a kid's face. Yeah, there was just some random other parent just flying through the air for some reason. It's too much whimsy. Like, the, the whole ratio has been skewed. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so that scene was ridiculous. The store is just kicks everyone out. No one can be in the store anymore. Oh, and we never touched on the fact that Mr. Megorium is constantly calling Jason Bateman's character a mutant, which I guess is his term for yeah. people. Oh, I was, yeah, he just kept saying the mutant. And I was like, wow, that is cruel. It's almost as though Mr. Megorium views this character who we learn is named Henry, uh, the accountant. We, al- mm-hmm. we almost feel like Mr. Megorium sees Henry as like his antithesis. So he's the one that's draining out the store. Which almost the film posits is what's happening, but obviously it's just the shoes. Oh yeah, and so then after the store shuts down, Natalie Portman basically abducts Megorium to Mr. Megorium to go to the hospital to try to prevent him from killing himself. The the film makes a sudden, um, really dark turn into almost a million dollar babyish, a million dollar baby uh, <laughs> type ending. Yeah, he's in the hospital demanding assisted suicide. The film basically. suddenly becomes all about assisted suicide. Yeah, it was definitely a major thematic element. This weird, colorful guys. Yeah, we learn he's 243 years old, and he's all like, come on, Molly, you knew that. You're at my birthday party. It's my time to go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The kid brings him a gift bag gag in the hospital where he just keeps pulling toys out of this gift bag, Mm -hmm. and they just keep coming, and there's like a some sort of brass instrument where he's pl- Megorium's playing that and it's obviously like way too loud for the hospital oh, yeah. and the doctor comes running in and he's just like hee hee I'm so whimsical yeah he su- smuggled in a euphonium <laughs> through his butthole yes a euphonium <laughs> that's right because the how did the kid get it in there and then when you turn off the lights you realize the kid put glow-in-the-dark stars all over the entire hospital room and it's like they spend quite a while just showing you these glow-in-the-dark stars because it's just so whimsical right it's as though mr megorium can't live in the real world can't grow up he has to live in this handy colored kid's world yeah which again he's creating his delusion around himself but then basically he convinces natalie portman that assisted suicide is okay she still doesn't want to run the store, but she helps him have a great last day, is what happens after the hospital. This film really reminded me that I need to open enroll. <laughs> yeah, definitely get your health care. I hope that the Megorium Emporium paid for Natalie Portman's health care and that she wasn't just like a part-time worker without benefits. Oh yeah, Mahoney is the only employee that actually works at the store, aside from Mr. Megorium. So I bet he pulls all sorts of shady shit regarding her salary (laughs) oh god so yeah so one of the fun things natalie portman helps megorium do is she rolls out bubble wrap and lets and tells him to dance on it and then they're all like dancing around on the bubble wrap being so magical and then he's like what a great last day Yeah, that scene's pretty insufferable too (laughs) that scene really had me wondering why is this film (laughs) yes um yeah jason Bateman, we learn he hates pretending, so he, apparently you can't use imagination if you're just a boring grown-up. Yeah. But you also have to wonder, so if magic is real in this universe, can't Mr. Megorium just find some other magical means to extend his life? Yeah, he could have bought more shoes, but I think what it is, is he knew he was this immortal being, 
and he chose to put a time limit on his life, kind of like Arwen choosing to marry Aragorn, and that kind of put a time limit on her life, on her immortality. Yeah. Because who wants to live forever? Mm. <laughs> but yeah, so, oh, but then quickly we, so the accountant, uh, Henry, hates pretending, but he really comes around quickly. He doesn't actually hate pretending. He goes up to this kid's room, Eric's room, and the mom finds them pretending together in the bedroom. Oh my god. <laughs> like the stranger, like she just finds a stranger with her kid and she's basically like, please leave. Oh yeah, Jason Bateman's sort of channeling Smeagol in his performance. Oh yeah, he's all on the floor like hee hee hee. And then uh the yeah, they're trying on the kids' hats. hats. Yeah, and the hats you know are whimsical because they've got like string lights around the room. So he's just got a, a room full of hats and string lights and a bed. So this film is potentially introducing the idea that uh, maybe the kid could be the next magic creator, that he could somehow imbue his hats with a similar spell to Mr. Morgorium's shoes. That's sort of how the legacy can continue, like it'll continue with Natalie Portman, but also with this kid. Yeah, the kid could be the next one after Natalie Portman. Like how she was groomed since she was six years old, the kid's being groomed. Um, but Natalie Portman is not an immortal being that lives for hundreds of years like Mr. Megorium. What does Natalie Portman do with uh, her hands? Oh, it was playing the piano. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. What does she do with her hands? I also have um, dysphoria in my notes and I have absolutely no idea why. Oh, because Mr. Megorium said the word dysphoria and you were like, that's not a, ki- a word kids would understand. <laughs> oh yeah. Why did they sneak dysphoria in there? Uh, I think dysphoria about life and death, I think, is what he was talking about. Time to oh, die. But, yeah, before he dies, I thought Natalie Portman was going to make out with him because they're getting, like, really close, I think, touching. And we were talking about how it's, like, a Lolita thing or just that scene before he dies where they're being so heartfelt just seems really interesting, their relationship. So as part of his last day, Natalie Portman takes Mr. Megorium to a mattress store where they have like almost a music video, uh, a music video montage of them jumping on all the mattresses and having so much fun. And I have to say that scene was by far the one I hated the most. (laughs) Definitely the worst part of this really bad movie. But yeah, then so before, yeah, like 20 or 30 minutes before the film is actually done, Mr. Megorium does it. He offs himself. He just does it. Yeah. Because Natalie, Natalie Portman, Portman came around and let him kill himself. Natalie Portman sneaks in a loaded gun and he blows his brains out. No, not really. His shoes <laughs> just wears out and he yeah. just passes on. And no, there's that scene of yeah, him Yeah, he has paper this paper airplane. airplane in a case, in a glass case. And I am not sure if they ever explain what the paper airplane was, but I was very confused about this. But he would... Throughout the film, he would throw the paper airplane and he would fly around the store and he would talk to the store and like caress the store with the paper airplane. I don't know. So this time he throws the paper airplane and it makes ripples through space time. And you see the store like dissolving and turning into like the whole universe. And so, you know, he's just ascending to the collective consciousness. The false facade drops aside and you see the world as it really is. Yeah, exactly. So that's when we, when, uh, yeah, because you had mentioned, like we always say, every film could be someone's descent into madness because he does reference King Lear, who has a descent into madness. Right. Just, just before he dies, he talks to Mahoney one last time. He has this whole monologue that's all about King Lear. 
and I will read some of it to you. So he says, when King Lear dies in Act 5, do you know what Shakespeare has written? He's written, he dies. That's all, nothing more. No fanfare, no metaphor, no brilliant final words. The culmination of the most influential work of dramatic literature is he dies. It takes Shakespeare a genius to come up with he dies. And yet every time I read those two words, I find myself overwhelmed with dysphoria. There it was. Um, yeah, so anyways, he's basically like, I've lived all five of my acts, Mahoney, and I am not asking you to be happy that I must go. I'm only asking that you turn the page, continue reading, and let the next story begin. And if anyone asks what became of me, you relate my life in all its wonder and end it with a simple and modest, he died. <laughs> right, well, here we have the flip side. Like, what if someone, instead of doing something simple and profound, made a whole, like, terrible movie about the theme of he dies? Well, I thought that it was weird because looking at King Lear, King Lear did not die simply. He, like, had this slow decay with, like, all of his daughters end up dead, and then he's dead, and, like, the kingdom's all divided. So I'm not sure this is the metaphor that Megorium wants to pick, but <laughs> I, I see what he's saying. Right, we can sort of see a Cordelia connection uh, with Natalie Portman's character. He's... He's, um, she's almost his favorite daughter in a way, the daughter he never had. Yeah, Cordelia becomes King Lear's favorite daughter, but then after she dies at the end, then King Lear dies. That just dry. That's the last straw. Yeah. It's weird because the movie sort of sets up this whole bleak uh, outlook in a way. It's like you can't really prevent it. It's mortality. You just die. But then with that last scene, you end on sort of a hopeful note where it's like where Mr. Megorium sort of accepts his death. Instead of being sad, he yes. is able to let go and transcend. Right. It's supposed to be uplifting, and he's telling her, you cannot kill yourself. You have to keep living, which I thought was kind of rude. But also, he has lived for 243 years, so I feel like it's also kind of a dick move to be like, come on, mortal humans. Come to terms with your death the same way I have, but I've had twice more than twice as long to do it <laughs> that's true <laughs> oh and we see his tombstone so we do learn that he was born in 1764 uh, and lived until 2007 and the three things written on his tombstone are toy impresario uh wonder aficionado and avid shoe wearer it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good up with that so eventually Mahoney, uh, as the plot continues for another 20 minutes for some reason, Mahoney sort of has to wrestle <laughs> with the decision of whether she wants to pursue her career as a classical pianist or whether she wants to adopt uh, the store as her own, since now that Mr. Gregorium's dead, the store is sort of just like gray and has no magic, has no soul. Yeah, so the store is completely gray. I'm not sure how long it's supposed to be after Megorium has died, I forget, but... Um, Natalie Portman is just in her lowest of lows. Uh, oh, we also see that at this time, the guy in the basement writes, uh, the Megorian book volumes. He puts the book on the shelf and he has all these books that say Megorium on the spine, the Bellini guy with the mustache. Right. So you can almost sort of posit that the paper airplane that we see Mr. Megorium throwing around is actually his last page, like the end of his story. Oh, wow, So this yeah. man has now compiled the last page. 
gosh, and what it yes, yeah, so what is Bellini? Is he the part of Megorium's mind that the part of the collective conscious or something that keeps all the stories? I don't know. That's a good point. He might be like a weaver of some sort. Yeah, exactly. Let's see. Uh... Um, yeah, so Natalie Portman says over and over again, I am not Mr. Megorium, because she keeps pointing out this is Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, and I cannot be Mr. Megorium, and that's why she can't run the store. Right, she is reluctant to subsume her own personality uh, and her dream of being a like renowned pianist, and said oh, that's except true. Mr. Megorium's dream of owning a whimsical toy store. Yeah, I feel like they didn't touch on that enough, because like, what if she, it was... They made it seem like she just didn't have enough confidence, but what if it was that she wanted to focus on music writing or on composing? You're right. Right. Mahoney's backstory is fairly convoluted and doesn't really, like, explain anything, and the acting doesn't really help. Right. Um, oh, yeah, and she has a speech um, to tell uh, Jason Bateman that the impossible is what the store did all the time. <laughs> And when they're discussing whether or not she could run the store. Um, right. So Natalie Portman's trying to figure out this cube. They work some complicated sex magic when Natalie Portman fucks Jason Bateman's brains out. <laughs> or Yeah, they're alone they in the store black. that's completely gray. He tells her um, that she uh, does have a sparkle. Because she asks him in the middle of the movie, do I have a sparkle? And he's sort of like, I don't really believe, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just too boring to answer this silly question Sparkle magic and so then she gets really yeah she gets really sad but then at the end he's like you do have a sparkle and uh it just really makes her able to do everything like basically she needed jason bateman to believe in her in order to run the store or to get in order to be able to control magic right so the cube it seems is almost like the heart of the store that natalie needs to read yeah it's her paper airplane mm. So, yeah, the wooden block, the wooden cube starts flying around because Natalie Portman really believes in the store and believes in magic. Yeah, she uses it as a catalyst to, like, bring magic back into the store, and we see various objects become colorful, magical, and animated again. It's this happy ending because we know <laughs> that just even though Mr. Megorium has moved on, uh, the story on this plane will still continue. Uh, the story is going to be fine. The kids will be fine. Uh, Jason Bateman will maybe <laughs> adopt course. his child or something. Oh, yeah. Well, he has a mom, but it took like another half hour for Natalie Portman to come around after Megorium's passing. Yeah, that's another issue I would describe about this film. Oh, yeah, the pacing. But you forgot that Jason Bateman faints at the sight of the wooden block flying around. And when he comes to, he's like, don't you remember that wooden <laughs> block? And she's like, what wooden block? Right. And she's, she's like messing with him, him for a second. Yeah. So yeah. this straight edge character who's very, uh, you know, about practical things that he can see. He sort of has to wrestle with this new found ideology, which is that magic is real in this universe. Yes, now he believes it because he finally sees an animated toy, which is the wooden block. Mm. Um, so you could almost posit that it takes both of these characters, like sort of the reluctant one and the man of science, it takes both of them accepting in this magic to bring the store back into its former glory. Oh, right, which is why we're joking they did sex magic in the store to bring it back. Yeah, I don't know. Was there some sort um, of uh, satisfying conclusion to Jason Bateman's arc, or was it just the idea that he and No, Natalie... he learned to pretend he likes kids now. He believes in magic. 
he, it was just the whole, you should always stay, it was the Peter Pan complex. You should always stay young and childlike. That was sort of the, one of the messages of this film. Oh, it's like Hook. They have this exact same thing in Hook, where he finds out that he's Peter Pan and like is able to bring his magic back, his own like ability to fly and stuff. Oh, and then there's a brief moment when she starts like uh, using the magic finally, when the cube uh, has released its magic. Uh and she starts animating the store. She turns into a cartoon for a second. Oh she? yeah, there's like a CGI inserts of her dancing as a cartoon. <laughs> that was really weird. And they took a play on it, uh, or they um, made a twist on running the store for her to be with her being a conductor or a musician because she's sort of like conducting the toys mm-hmm. all around the store, like a mus- like a composer would or a conductor. So in would. the end, Natalie has been able to reconcile her like dueling passions, working for this magic toy store yes. and composing. And bringing joy to people and childlike wonder and reaching for the impossible. She has, oh, that's what it was. J- right, right, right. So Jason Bateman, so the kid knew how to reach for the impossible and he got a friend, I guess, was his main change. Um, but Jason Bateman and Natalie Portman had to learn to reach for the impossible because Jason Bateman completed his insurmountable task from the beginning, which was being the accountant for this ridiculous toy store with paperwork all over the place. And Natalie Portman did the impossible by, you know, becoming Mr. Megorium. All in all, the film ended. <laughs> and assisted suicide is good, says this movie. Oh, and then we have to read, we have to discuss that Zach Helm, the director and writer of this film, hates it now. Yeah, so there's this amazing piece of trivia about um, in the last season of Breaking Bad, there's a scene where Walter White is holed <laughs> up in what is, is really his version of purgatory. He's sort of like removed from all the main cast. <laughs> out in this like wintry cabin and the man who leaves him there tells him that there's only two dvds that he can watch if he's bored a copy of mr megorium's wonder emporium and a second redundant copy of mr megorium's wonder emporium so that's what walter white gets us his like um consolation in this like bleakest of environments Yeah, with the pacing of this film, I can definitely see why it would be terrible to only have this to watch. He has to face his own mortality in the bleakest way possible by watching Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium twice. (laughs) Yes, and then Zach Helm has a quote um, that, let's see, Zach Helm says, or said, Having myself endured the ignominy of watching the Technicolor train wreck that is Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium multiple times every day for over a year, I can attest to it being the perfect Kafka-esque hell for a character of such moral ambiguity as Walter White. Oh, God, another Kafka-esque So yet again, yeah, just like Howard the Duck is Kafka-esque. Oh, and then the rest of that quote is amazing as well. He says... Um, that is exactly two more copies than are allowed in my house <laughs> in reference to Breaking Bad. <laughs> yeah. So clearly Zach Helm was not happy with how the movie turned out. He actually knows like what it is and has acknowledged it and sort of distanced himself and disowned it. Right. And since it's interesting because you have the Congreve cube and apparently William Congreve, um, some of his quotes are accidentally attributed to Shakespeare, who wrote King Lear, mm. like the hell hath no fury, or hell of fury like a woman scorned is actually from Congreve. Mm. Uh, cool. 
Anyway, so there's kind of like the comedy reference because Congreve was known for his comedies and satire. And then there's sort of like the tragedy reference with King Lear because King Lear was a tragedy and ev almost everyone dies and he has a fit of madness. So like you were saying it, you could kind of, I see the duality of this film. You could go the lighthearted interpretation. You could go the heavy interpretation where he's just sort of dissolving the what we think yeah. is reality, like New York City and none of us are real. Oh, and then Stranger in Fiction is also concerned with both those things. Uh, Will Ferrell's trying to decide whether he's in a tragedy or a comedy. He has this whole thing where he visits oh, Dustin right. Hoffman, who's like an English professor, and Dustin Hoffman describes to him the difference, which is that tragedies die with death, and comedies, somebody gets married, hmm. and that's how you know what you're in. Yeah, so we have both in this in Megorium, because Megorium uh, kills Dies. himself, and Natalie Portman and Jason Bateman have sex magic to bring the yeah, store back. Yeah, probably get married. So you can sort of see that Zach yeah. Cobb is trying to create a comedy tragedy, like purposefully, clearly, because he's <laughs> familiar with the concepts. A tragicom. And then we also <laughs> see that much like in Stranger Than Fiction, he's sort of playing with the meta lens of what is real, what is not, how do we privilege reality. Yeah, so I'd say overall, the, th the people who really suffered in this film were probably Dustin Hoffman, because again, it does seem like he's trying to be like a fun and compelling character, just not quite <laughs> reaching it. Yeah, we're not sure why Natalie Portman is so obsessed with his character because he's kind of annoying, basically. Yeah, and then Natalie Portman, I kind of think, probably just did this as a cash-in. She's probably just cashing a paycheck. <laughs> she doesn't really seem to be trending. Yeah, I didn't really feel... Yeah, I didn't feel very compelled by her character's dilemma. So aside from Dustin Hoffman, the other person I felt bad for was Jason Bateman because he also probably took this role at a time when he was like, oh, a, like a starring lead role where like a good third of the film. Is I'll be appealing to, to children and the masses. Yeah, he's clearly like in every scene he's in, he's actually bringing like a really good level of acting. Uh, even if it is like really forced scenarios, like when he's holding up the cue cards with the kid. So I feel bad that he maybe took the wrong role, even though he's not even bad in it. It's the film itself that's bad. Yeah, overall I would say what made it not that enjoyable for me was just... Um, the there wasn't much to the plot. It pretty much was Mr. Megorium said, I am going to die tomorrow. He did it. <laughs> and then Natalie Portman does take over the store, but there's just a little bit of conflict in there. And most of it is just like trying to be whimsical and funny, like uh, Megorium playing the euphonium or Jason Bateman playing pretend in the kid's room. It's just like a lot of scenes of yeah, that. Yeah, it's a very straightforward plot while also being very cliche since, as we acknowledge at the beginning, it's sort of drawing from a lot of different stories and trying to like jumble them up to make something new. And that's sort of the hard thing about literature in general is that whenever you come up with something new, if you're not actually creating something compelling to say with that new thing, then it usually falls flat on its face. That's why Hollywood never wants to make like new intellectual properties. They always just make sequels or recycle everything or remix things. Or well, also because anytime you try something new, you end up with Mr. Megorium. Yep. So let this be a lesson <laughs> to you kids. Never try. Yeah, that's the real lesson here. Don't reach for the impossible. It's a quote from The Simpsons, just so I, just so I attribute it. Okay. <laughs> Well, as last time, uh, we have been your hosts, Pablo and Erica. We hope to catch you here again next time for our next Cinemazing Chat.
Bye.